Coming up, how fast does a cheetah actually run? The cheetah is giving a power that's about double what we see for a racing greyhound at the start of a race and almost four times as high as a polo horse and Usain Bolt. And we know what lives under the sea, but what lives under the seabed? We have found all three domains of life. We find bacteria, we find uh, another uh, microbial domain called archaea, and we also find fungi, so microbial eukaryotes are there as well. Plus the mega prizes that are turning scientists into millionaires. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Kerry Smith. Usain Bolt's top speed is 27 miles an hour. He's probably the fastest man on Earth. But how does he compare with the fastest land animal, the cheetah? It's surprisingly difficult to make an accurate measurement of a cheetah running. Past estimates range from 65 to 70 miles an hour. That's more than double Usain Bolt. And now Alan Wilson from the Royal Veterinary College near London has a new number. I went to meet Alan and to find out if the cheetah is still the gold medalist. Alan, how did you get interested in cheetahs running? I spent a lot of my student career doing athletics myself and as an undergraduate studied sports science. So logical extension from that was to look at the elite animal athletes and the cheetah is our fastest land animal. So it's an obvious place to start, try and understand how the cheetah is so much faster than Usain Bolt or myself. Now, before your study, um, the best estimate we had was 65 miles an hour. Um, and I got in touch with Craig Sharp, who made that estimate. And he wasn't able, unfortunately, to talk to us for the podcast, but he did send me an email saying that he was a vet in Kenya in the 1960s. Do you know the story of how he did it? Yes, it's, it's a lovely story because Craig's own background has been in human athletics and they had a cheetah that had been hand-reared and reintroduced to the wild that used to come back sometimes for lunch, I suppose, when it was hungry. And they set up a course, they ran the cheetah three times, I think, and they used a vehicle and a piece of meat to encourage a cheetah to run. So it's classic old-school science with very careful measurement and validation of those measurements. Why is it difficult, then, to make a measurement of a, a real wild cheetah running? Well, cheetah hunts are very short, and we see them in documentaries, but you never know where a cheetah is going to hunt, when it's going to hunt, and what direction the antelope and the cheetah are actually going to go in. So you can't actually set up equipment to measure that. So most of the wild figures we have are really just estimates of how quickly people think something's going away from them, and that's very inaccurate. So you invented a special tracking collar which you used out in Botswana to try to measure these wild cheetahs hunting. Can we have a look at one? Yes, here's, here's a collar here. We have a solar panel on the top that provides most of the power. The clever bit, which is the GPS, the accelerometers and the gyroscopes, which are all used in combination to detect when the animal's likely to hunt and then to actually capture the movement, the acceleration, the maneuvering of the cheetah to actually generate the data that we used in the paper. Right, and before you went out to Botswana, um, how did you test it? We tested the collar on my own dog. He's a lurcher, a type of dog that is very happy to run fast and tight circles and run around on a beach. So we tested the collar by going to a beach, running the dog on the beach and videoing him. And then we could go and measure where all the footprints were and see if the collar 
data recreated the track of the dog over the footprints. So we were confident we were reliably getting where the dog went and how fast he went. What's his name? His name is Zach. Zach. And when you put it on um, the wild cheetahs, what results did you get? Um, were their top speeds matching previous estimates? We found that the cheetahs are actually running about half the previous estimates of top speed. They're actually not going particularly quickly when they hunt. And when they are going quickly, it's a really transient event. The most impressive things about the cheetah was how sharply they turned, how quickly they accelerated, and how quickly they decelerated. Very much the hunting is about that turning and manoeuvring and trying to outmaneuver the prey. Craig Sharp's measurement, um, his top speed was 65 miles an hour. What was the top speed you recorded? Our top speed was 59 miles an hour, so we got close and we were probably in more difficult terrain that the cheetah was doing that in long, in long grass around shrubs and so on, not along a nice big turf track. How did cheetahs compare with uh, racehorses or greyhounds? The cheetah is giving a power that's about double what we see for a racing greyhound at the start of a race and almost four times as high as a polo horse and Usain Bolt. So Usain Bolt running his world record was about one quarter of the acceleration power we see of a cheetah. So what is it about the cheetah's uh, physiology that enables them to accelerate so quickly? The cheetah's got a lot of muscle and that muscle is very, very powerful. It fatigues very quickly, but it can use lots and lots of energy and contract very quickly, delivering lots and lots of power. So it's that, and it's a little bit like a drag racer. It's got a really low gear, so when the muscles are able to apply a lot of power at low speed. So really, it looks like an animal that's designed for acceleration, not an animal that's designed to run really quickly. So anatomically, that's quite fascinating and tells us some sort of different insights into how the animal's arranged. Alan Wilson from the University of London's Royal Veterinary College. Coming up in the research highlights, solving the mystery of birds missing penises and an ancient giant lizard that beat off competition from mammals. First, though, we've all heard of the Nobels, those revered over $1 million prizes bestowed on a handful of lucky folks each year. But have you heard of the Fundamental Physics Prize, the Breakthrough Prize in Life Sciences, the Tang Prize? If not, and you're a scientist, maybe you should look into them. It's not just the Nobels these days that could give a researcher a serious financial lift and an ego boost along with it. But who's behind this rash of new supercash science megaprizes? Freelance reporter Zia Morali has been looking into them. Now, let's do the numbers first, because people are always curious about money. The Nobel Prizes are worth over a million dollars. How much do you get if you win uh, each of these new mega prizes? The biggest ones are the Fundamental Physics Prize and the Breakthrough in Life Sciences Prizes, which were both announced last year and both bring sort of a whopping three million US dollars each. And then sort of just behind them are the Tang Prizes that are coming out of Asia. And those are worth about 1.675 million US dollars, taking into account currency fluctuations. These are huge amounts of money. I mean, what's the rationale behind these new prizes? Having spoken to some of the people behind these, they're all very rich. So to them, it doesn't seem like that much money, actually. But basically, they wanted to make a splash. They're quite open about that. And they chose figures that would get their prizes noticed. So, you know, they wanted to make a statement and say, 
This is an important one. It's going to be something that scientists want to win. And it's going to be something that the public takes notice of, that hopefully governments take notice of, that funding bodies take notice of. From talking to all of them, they've come from science backgrounds or at the very least academic backgrounds. Um, Some of them did graduate studies in science. And, you know, they talk about trying to give something back to science. Uh, not just the money, but also to kind of raise the status of science in the public eye. Not everyone is super happy about this new rash of mega prizes, are they? They sort of came out of nowhere when they were announced and the initial reaction was sort of excitement that a lot of money was being given back into science and people were pleased about that. But when they sort of sat down and they looked at it, they kind of, you know, they sort of said, well, you know, is this the best way to spend it? If you genuinely want to promote science and get people excited about it, are you going to best achieve those aims by giving out a handful of prizes to a few people? And is there any evidence then that these prizes benefit science itself, which people might hope they do, rather than just lining the pockets of already high-profile high scientists? I would say no, but there again, I would also say in defence of these prizes that they haven't been running for a very long time. We can look at the Fundamental Physics Prize, which, um, you know, they had a big award ceremony in March of this year. It was very glamorous. They had Morgan Freeman giving the awards. They had, you know, opera singers and piano players. Very swish, very swanky event. Um, You know, did it really raise the public's awareness of physics? Did it really turn the winners of these prizes into superstars, which was, I think, one of the aims of this prize? From my personal experience, I don't think it really made much of a dent in the public's consciousness. We're tending towards having a very star-studded podcast this week, by the way. Morgan Freeman in this one, Usain Bolt has also been referenced, and later on in the show, listen out for Jim he gets a mention in a piece about fossils. One thing I'm interested in is whether these new prizes here are all for individuals, because I guess that's not really how science works these days. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, And it is a point that some of the critics have brought up because, you know, it does play into this mythology of the kind of the lone genius scientist who makes big discoveries all by themselves. And that's certainly not the way things work, you know, across most of science now. Uh, You know, there could be an argument that one of the few places it does still perhaps happen is in theoretical physics. But even then, that's becoming much more collaborative these days. So in March, at the awards ceremony, a special prize was given for the discovery of the Higgs boson, which is about as, you know, an extreme example of a collaboration in science as you can get, because there was something like 6,000 people involved in that discovery. And so a $3 million prize was shared between about seven experimental physicists who played a role in leading that collaboration. And can you spend it on what you like if you are lucky enough to win one of these prizes? Absolutely, yes, you can. They are very lucky um, to be able to do that. And, you know, I chatted to a few people about what they planned to spend it on and they were, uh, you know, a little bit, I think, uncomfortable about having to answer that question because I think they know that the expectation is they will put at least some of it back into research because it is a huge amount Some of them absolutely are. And, you know, as an example, 
you know, I just talked about the people behind the hunt for the Higgs boson. I think quite a few of them who have won a share of $3 million between them will be trying to find ways to put money back into particle physics research and to sort of help young people to study science and to study physics. Were the aims, so no one's bought a yacht and called it the Higgs boson yet. They haven't told me if they have, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say they haven't done it, actually. You know, they've probably got plans like that up their sleeve. That was Zia Morali. You can read her feature at nature.com slash news. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Thea Cunningham. Did you know that most birds don't have a penis? Now it seems their shortcomings are caused by signals that prompt cell death. Researchers at the University of Florida cut tiny windows in chicken eggs so they could compare developing chickens, which lack penises, with ducks, whose penises can be half as long as their bodies. The chicken embryos began to form penises, but they shrank halfway through development. The team think the shrinkage is caused by an increase in a protein known as BMP4, which promotes cell death. The traits may have evolved as a byproduct of the evolution of other features requiring BMP proteins, like beak shape and feathers. You can read that study in Current Biology. Researchers have found evidence of a giant plant-eating lizard that successfully competed with mammals around 40 million years ago. The team at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln came across the creature in a group of fossils collected in Myanmar. Its teeth and jaws revealed it dined on plants and was almost twice the length of any living herbivorous lizard. They christened the species Barbacterex morrisoni after the doors frontman Jim Morrison, whose nickname was the Lizard King. Reptiles need heat to keep their bodies warm, and the hotter temperatures back then might have allowed the large lizards to survive. Find that paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Life in the fast lane is hectic. Work, the school run, dinner to cook, the phone bill to pay, it all gets a bit much. But what if we slowed everything down? Right down to life's lower speed limit. Living deep in the sediment under the oceans, there are microorganisms whose metabolisms are so slow they could be living for millions of years, completely isolated from the surface world so slow that they impact their environment over geological time. Researchers from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts went fishing for these extreme slow coaches, and Noah Baker asked researcher William Orsi what they found in the depths of the depths. We have found all three domains of life, actually. So we find bacteria, we find another microbial domain called archaea, And we also find fungi, so microbial eukaryotes are there as well. So it appears to be maybe a more diverse ecosystem than some might have thought. And what's interesting about this ecosystem? The marine sediments of the world contain the largest reservoir of organic carbon on Earth as things are growing and living and dying in in the water above these sediments. When they die, they're dead material sinks to the bottom, and it's deposited in these sediments. And it's been debated how much of that organic carbon remains there, or is it 
basically eaten or turned over by these microbes and then returned to the ocean in the form of CO2. And that's interesting and important because it would have a huge control over the global carbon cycle, controlling how much of this organic carbon actually stays in these sediments or is respired and returned to the ocean. How do you go about studying how this cycle might work or how these processes might work in something that's so difficult to access? You need a drilling ship that's able to take these deep cores, which are hundreds of meters down, And then on top of that, you have to analyze microbial activities that are happening at incredibly slow rates compared to what we have on the surface world. They're likely to be living right at the energetic limits of life there. It could be that every 100 to 1,000 years, potentially, every cell turns over its biomass. So the thought is that because they're growing so slowly, whatever impacts that they might be having would be occurring over a geological scale. And you studied what's going on in these populations by measuring the genes that are expressed by all these organisms. It's called metagenomics. Could you explain a little about what that means? We looked at what genes are being expressed. So in that case, we were extracting and analyzing the message RNA. And then what we can do is translate the message RNA into proteins that they're coding for, and then we can use those proteins to reconstruct the active community uh, metabolism and try to get a sense on what sort of biogeochemical processes are being mediated by these microbes. It seems to me that you are essentially getting a window on a vast amount of things, pretty much everything that these organisms can and do do in terms of metabolism. Can you give us sort of a sum-up of the most exciting things you found out? Probably the most exciting thing, um, in my opinion, is the cell division story. Believe it or not, it's been unknown whether the cells in this environment are dividing. They could potentially be turning over their biomass without dividing. And this is a theory that um, Steve DeHaan at the University of Rhode Island has actually coined the grandfather's hammer theory. So if you imagine uh, your grandfather gave you his hammer, but the handle's been replaced two times and the head's been replaced three times, is it still your grandfather's hammer? The analogy is a microbial cell that's in the deep biosphere. It's been there for millions of years, and it's experiencing stress, and it has to replace different parts of its cell. So over 10 million years, it has turned over its biomass, but it hasn't actually divided. But what we showed was that um, the genes that are being expressed that are involved in cell division actually become more abundant in regions where there's higher numbers of cells in these sediments. So that means that, that there's more cells because they're dividing in those particular regions of the sediment. Given this really slow metabolic rate, does this mean that these microbes could potentially be some of the oldest organisms that exist in the world? Because these are really big numbers you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but that's actually a good, uh, that's a good point. And you mentioned the impact they could have on the cycling of organic chemicals, things like carbon. Does that mean that we should be paying particular attention to these communities when we think about things like global warming? I think so. I think it's definitely important to pay attention to these communities because they do control the cycling of important elements like carbon over geological timescales. To the extent that that is contributing to global warming, it is unknown, I would say, at this point, 
the specific role that they're they're playing, but it is it is a part of controlling the the flux of carbon dioxide to the ocean. These organisms sound quite unique, and one thing you've suggested here is that you've seen gene expression which is related to antibiotic defense. Is this something that we could look into for drug development in the future? It is, yes, and that that was a, a very exciting um, and unexpected uh, discovery that there's actually a lot of genes being expressed that are involved in natural product biosynthesis, like immunosuppressants, antibiotics, antifungals, so because the deep biosphere has been isolated from the surface world for potentially hundreds of millions of years, depending how deep you're going, it's possible that the pathogens that exist on the surface world haven't evolved defenses against the antibiotics that are produced in the deep biosphere. That was William Orsi talking to Noah Baker. Finally this week, the news chat, and I'm joined by Richard Van Norden. Hi, Richard. Hello, Kerry. First up this week, the FDA are calling for regulations on a new type of drug, if we can call it that. What's this story about? It's all about faecal transplants, using transplants of poop to re-establish healthy populations of microbes in your guts. What's happening is that the FDA, the US Food and Drug Administration, is going to regulate faeces like a drug. So doctors who want to perform faecal transplants on their patients must now submit an investigative new drug application to the FDA. What's going on here is that doctors are transplanting these faeces in very different ways. And the FDA says, well, we need everything to be standardised or we don't know why some experiments work and some don't. Um, Backpedalling a bit, why would anyone want faeces implanted into themselves, transplanted? Well, in fact, this has been going on for many years. The idea is that if you're infected with uh, bacteria, uh, such as Clostridium difficile, which causes diarrhoea, the idea is that if you transplant uh, healthy populations of bacteria, and, and where better to find them than people's stool, if you transplant them, you can change the flora in your gut. And this has actually been very successful. A 2011 review of of data from more than 300 patients concluded that faecal transplants can cure 92% of people with reoccurring infections for which antibiotics aren't working. So the evidence for this working is reasonably solid or at least gaining ground, but the FDA want to make sure that if people are going ahead with treatments like this, they're doing it in the right way. Exactly, and there's actually lots of unanswered questions. So it works very well against C. difficile, But the question is, does it work against uh, other infections? I mean, people are suggesting Crohn's disease, bowel disease, even multiple sclerosis in one small case study. Um, And and the question is, which applications work and which don't? The other problem is there's a wide variation in clinical practice, and it's too early to know which of the many ways of administering faeces is the most effective. Everyone has their own preferences. Tell us, without being too graphic, what some of the ways of applying this might be. Well, you can take faeces in through the, the top of the human body, through the nose, uh, or through the bottom. It's even possible to take stool microbes in the form of pills, uh, medical-grade gelatin capsules. There's yet another idea, which is to make synthetic faeces, a goopy substance that's made of a mixture of 33 microbes individually isolated from someone's faeces. And there's actually a trial going on here called repopulate 
Richard, our careers are now over. It's not going to get better than that. Repopulate. You just said it on the Nature Podcast. And uh, we should just quit while we're ahead. Perhaps we should do the rest of the news section first, though. Let's go now to China for some more serious news about uh, cleaning up their act on carbon emissions. Right, to China. So next week, the country is going to launch its first attempt to try and cut emissions using a market mechanism. This is in the city of Shenzhen. Uh, more than 600 industrial and construction companies are going to be given quotas for how much carbon dioxide they emit. And then if they pollute more, they have to buy credits from companies that achieve their quotas and pollute less. Now, you might think um, that's great. China is finally uh, cracking down on the carbon emissions it is emitting. In fact, another six cities are going to have these local schemes rolled out by the end of the year. That's not quite true, in fact, because China has never yet set an absolute cap on its carbon emissions. These caps actually allow the emissions to grow. In fact, China is committed to cutting its carbon intensity, that is the carbon emissions per unit of GDP. So if its GDP goes up, its economy grows, its carbon emissions grow, but, but, not, a, but not a linear one-to-one relationship. But I suppose that means that a market for trading your carbon is there's not such an imperative behind doing that if you've still got quite a lot that you can dispense. Well, exactly. But it is the first time that China's sort of trying out the scheme, just giving companies a quota, even if that quota is not a, a very tight cap. And of course, the speculation is, will China actually say we're actually going to put a cap on our emissions target, perhaps by uh, by 2020? So that's what everyone is hoping for. But the people we talked to said, well, you know, slow indications this might happen, but they need to walk before they can run. Um, but if it works, and if, if it ends up in a broader commitment, this would really breathe new life into international climate negotiations, which China has so far refused to take full part in. They've never set a cap on carbon emissions. Right. So it's not just the practicalities, but the hearts and minds as well. All right. So we should leave China for the wastelands of the north of Russia and Tunguska. Tell us about this. In 1908, a powerful blast ripped open the sky near the Tunguska River in Russia and flattened more than 2,000 square kilometres of forest. This was the biggest impact ever in recorded history. Uh, But so far, we've never conclusively found fragments from what was supposed to be a meteor or a bit of comet that fell off. Right, so thousands of square kilometres of trees wiped out, crater, one would imagine, no fragment of any kind of rock. Uh, What gives? Well, the problem is you've got to get fragments that you can conclusively attribute to, to whatever this uh, meteor was. And, and hundreds of magnetic spheres have been found in the 50s and the 60s, but there's debate about whether they're the remnants of a vaporized meteor, whether they're definitively Tunguska. But now some Ukrainian researchers say they found a, a smoking gun or a smoking fragment. They found fragments of rock less than one millimeter wide, and they say their analysis says they came from the iron-rich meteor that they now say caused the blast. That is some detailed fieldwork. Less than a millimetre, these pieces, uh, in this devastated forest area. So according to the team at the National Academy of Science of Ukraine in in Kiev, um, a Ukrainian scientist actually found these fragments in 1978 from a peat bog in the epicentre of the blast. And uh, findings published in the 1980s in, in Russian concluded that they were actually probably terrestrial rocks that were altered by the impact and not actually rocks from the meteor. But these guys decided to take a closer look using a battery of modern analytical techniques. So a battery of modern techniques applied to this uh, conclusive? No, of course. There's a few problems with their analysis. They say this, this proves it comes from an iron-rich uh, stony asteroid, which, by the way, agrees with, with modelling efforts at looking at the crater on the ground. But um, 
we get a lot of meteorite material raining down on us all the time, and this peak bog has not been convincingly dated since 1908, so you need samples of adjacent layers of peat. Are we looking at the background of meteorites raining down, or are we looking at Tunguska? All right. Thank you, Richard, for coming in. More at nature.com slash news for free on poo, on China's carbon and on meteorites. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we hear about a company that claims to have a working quantum computer. Oh, really? In the meantime, keep an eye out for the third Nature Pastcast. This month, we travel back to 1876 when the arrival of a baby gorilla in Europe fed into a heated debate about evolution. Also out this week is another podcast extra, where I escaped the office to talk to author Robert McFarlane. He's noticed a boom in books about the natural world. For all these goodies, go to nature.com forward slash podcast or your podcasting software. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Kerry Smith.